CD7. He went back to the thieves, who were looking very worried. My client feels, he said, that the situation could be resolved if you give the money back. Yes, said Boggis, approaching the idea as if it were a brand new theory of cosmic creation. But it's the receipt, see? We have to fill it up, time and place signed and everything. My client feels that possibly you could rob him of, let us say, five copper pieces, said Tom John smoothly. I bloody don't, shouted the fool who was coming round. That represents two copper pieces as the going rate, plus expenses of three copper pieces for time, call-out fees. We're in Tehran Kosh, said Boggis. Exactly. Very fair, very fair. Boggis looked over Tom John's head at the fool, who was now completely conscious and very angry. Very fair, he said loudly. Statesmanlike, much obliged, I'm sure. He looked down at Tom John. And anything for yourself, sir? He added. Just say the word. We've got a special on GBH this season, practically painless. You'll barely fear a thing. Hardly breaks the skin, said the older nephew. Plus, you get a choice of limb. I believe I'm well served in that area, said Tom John smoothly. Oh, well. Right, yeah, then, no problem. Which merely leaves, continued Tom John, as the thieves started to walk away, the question of legal fees. The gentle greyness at the stump of the night flowed across Ark Moorpork. Tom John and Howell sat on either side of the table in their lodgings, counting. Three silver dollars and eighteen copper pieces in profit, I make it, said Tom John. That was amazing, said the fool. I mean, the way they volunteered to go home and get some more money as well, after you gave them that speech about the rights of man. He dabbed some more ointment on his head. And the youngest one started to cry, he added. Amazing. It wears off, said Howell. You're a dwarf, aren't you? Howell didn't feel he could deny this. I can tell you're a fool, he said. Yes, it's the bells, isn't it? said the fool wearily, rubbing his ribs. Yes, and the bells. Tom John grimaced and kicked Howell under the table. Well, I'm very grateful, said the fool. He stood up and winced. I'd really like to show my gratitude, he said. Is there a tavern open around here? Tom John joined him at the window and pointed down the length of the street. See all those tavern signs, he said. Yes, gosh, there's hundreds. Right, see the one at the end, with the blue and white sign? Yes, I think so. Well, as far as I know, that's the only one around here that's ever closed. Then pray allow me to treat you to a drink. It's the least I can do, said the fool nervously. And I'm sure the little fellow would like something to quaff. Howell gripped the edge of the table and opened his mouth to roar and stopped. He stared at the two figures. His mouth stayed open. It closed again with a snap. Something the matter, said Tom John. Howell looked away, 
It had been a long night. Trick of the light, he muttered. And I could do with a drink, he added. A bloody good quaff. In fact, he thought, why fight it? I'll even put up with the singing, he said. What was the next word? Scold, I think. Oh. Powell looked unsteadily into his mug. Drunkenness had this to be said for it. It stopped the flow of inspirations. And you left out the gold, he said. <laughs> said Tom John. He was wearing the fool's hat. Powell considered this. I reckon, he said, concentrating. It was between the gold and the gold, and I reckon. He peered again into the mug. It was empty, a horrifying sight. I reckon, he tried again and finally gave up and substituted. I reckon I can do with another drink. My shout this time, said the fool. <laughs> My squeak. <laughs> he tried to stand up and banged his head. In the gloom of the bar, a dozen axes were gripped more firmly. The part of Howell that was sober, and was horrified to see the rest of him being drunk, urged him to wave his hand at the beetling brows glaring at him through the gloom. It's all right, he said to the bar at large. He don't mean it. He's very funny, what's name? Idiot. Fool. Very funny fool. All the way from, what's his place? Longcret, said the fool, and sat down heavily on the bar. That's right. Long way away from, what's name? Sounds like a foot disease. Don't know how to behave. Don't know many dwarfs. <laughs> said the fool, clutching his head. Bit short of them where I come from. <laughs> Someone tapped Howell on the shoulder. He turned and looked into a craggy, hairy face under an iron helmet. The dwarf in question was tossing a throwing axe up and down in a meaningful way. You ought to tell your friend to be a bit less funny, he suggested. Otherwise, he'll be amusing the demons in hell. Howell squinted at him through an alcoholic haze. How are you? He said. Grab pot thundergust, said the dwarf, striking his chainmail torso. And I say... Howell peered closer. Here I know you, he said. You've got a cosmetics mill down Hobfast Street. I bought a lot of grease paint off you last week. A look of panic crossed Thundergust's face. He leaned forward in panic. Shut up, shut up, he whispered. That's right, it said the halls of Elvin Perfume and Rouge Co. Said Howell happily. Very good stuff, said Tom John, who was trying to stop himself from sliding off a tiny bench. Especially your number 19. Corpse green. My father swears it's the best first class. The dwarf hefted his axe uneasily. Well, er, he said. Oh, 
But, yes, well, thank you. Only the finest ingredients, mark you. Chop them up with that, do you? said Howell innocently, pointing to the axe. Or is it your night off? Thundergust's brow beetled again like a cockroach convention. Here, you're not with the theatre. There's us, said Tom John. Strolling players, he corrected himself. Standing still players now. <laughs> Sliding down players now. The dwarf dropped his axe and sat down on the bench, his face suddenly softened with enthusiasm. I went last week, he said. Bloody good it was. There was this girl and this fella, but she was married to this old man. And there was this other fella, and they said he died, and she pined away and took poison. And then it turned out this man was the other man, really, only he couldn't tell her on account of... Thundergust stopped and blew his nose. Everyone died in the end, he said. Very tragic. I cried all the way home. I don't mind telling you. She was so pale. Number 19 and a layer of powder, said Tom John cheerfully. Plus a bit of brown eyeshadow. Eh? And a couple of hankies in the vest, he added. What's he saying? said the dwarf to the company at, for want of a better word, large. Howell smiled into his tankard. Give him a bit of Gretelina's soliloquy, boy, he said. Right. Tom John stood up, hit his head, sat down, and then knelt on the floor as a compromise. He clasped his hands to what would have been, but for a few chance chromosomes, his bosom. You lie who call it summer, he began. The assembled dwarfs listened in silence for several minutes, one of them dropped his axe and was noisily hushed by the rest of them. And melting snow, farewell. Tom John finished. Drinks, foil, collapses behind battlements, down ladder, out of dress, into tabard for comic guard number two. Wait, entrance left. What, ho, good. That's about enough, said Howell quietly. Several of the dwarfs were crying into their helmets. There was a chorus of blown noses. Thundergust dabbed at his eye with a chainmail handkerchief. That was the most saddest thing I've ever heard, he said. He glared at Tom John. Hang on, he said, a realisation dawned. He's a man. I bloody fell in love with that girl on stage, he nudged Howell. He's not a bit of an elf, is he? Absolutely human, said Howell. I know his father. Once again, he stared hard at the fool, who was watching them with his mouth open, and looked back at Tom John. <sighs> he thought. Coincidence. Sacting, he said. A good actor can be anything, right? He could feel the fool's eye boring into the back of his short neck. Yes, but dressing up as women, it's a bit, said Thundergust doubtfully. Tom John slipped off his shoes and knelt down on them, bringing his face level with the dwarfs. He gave him a calculating stare for a few seconds and then adjusted his features. 
and there were two thundergusts. True, one of them was kneeling, and had apparently been shaved. What ho, what ho, said Tom John in the dwarf's voice. This was by way of being a hilarious gag to the rest of the dwarves, who had an uncomplicated sense of humour. As they gathered round the pair, Howell felt a gentle touch on the shoulder. You two are with the theatre, said the fool, now almost sober. That's right. Then I've come five hundred miles to find you. It was, as Hal would have noted in his stage directions, later the same day. The sound of hammering as the disc theatre rose from its cradle of scaffolding thumped through Howell's head and out the other side. He could remember the drinking, he was certain, and the dwarfs brought lots more rounds when Tom John did his impersonations. Then they had all gone to another bar, Thundergust knew, and then they had gone to a clatch and takeaway, and after that, it was just a blur. He wasn't very good at quaffing. Too much of the drink actually landed in his mouth. Judging by the taste in it, some incontinent creature of the night had also scored a direct hit. Can you do it? said Vitola. Howell smacked his lips to get rid of the taste. I expect, said Tom John. It sounded interesting, the way he told it. Wicked kings ruling with the help of evil witches, storms, ghastly forests, true heir to throne in life and death struggle, flash of dagger, screams, alarums, evil king dies, good triumphs, bells ring out. Showers of rose petals can be arranged, said Vitola. I know a man who can get them at practically cost. They both looked at Howell, who was drumming his fingers on his stool. All three found their attention drawn to the bag of silver the fool had given Howell. Even by itself, it represented enough money to complete the disc. And there had been talk of more to follow. Patronage, that was the thing. You will do it then, will you? said Vitola. It's got a certain something, Howell conceded. Uh, I don't know. I'm not trying to pressure you, said Vitola. All three pairs of eyes swivelled back to the money bag. It seems a bit fishy, Tom John conceded. I mean, the fool is decent enough. But the way he tells it, it's very odd. His mouth says the words, and his eyes say something else. And I got the impression he'd much rather we believed his eyes. On the other hand, said Vitola hurriedly, what harm could it do? The pay's the thing. Howell raised his head. What? He said, muzzily. I said, the play's the thing, said Vitola. There was silence again, except for the drumming of Howell's fingertips. The bag of silver seemed to have grown larger. In fact, it seemed to fill the room. The thing is, Vitola began unnecessarily loudly. The way I see it, Howell began. They both stopped. After you, sorry. It wasn't important. Go ahead. I was going to say, we could afford to build a disc anyway, said Howell. Just the shell and the stage, said Vitola. But not all the other things. 
Not the trapdoor mechanism, or the machine for lowering gods out of heaven, or the big turntable, or the wind fans. We used to manage without all that stuff, said Howell. Remember the old days? All we had was a few planks and a bit of painted sacking. But we had a lot of spirit. If we wanted wind, we had to make it ourselves. He drummed his fingers for a while. Of course, he added quietly. We should be able to afford a wave machine. A small one. I've got this idea about this ship wrecked on an island. Where there is this... Sorry. Gatola shook his head. But we've had some huge audiences, said Tom John. Sure, lad, sure. But they pay in hapenies. The artificers want silver. If we wanted to be rich men, people, he corrected hurriedly, we should have been born carpenters. Vitola shifted uneasily. I already owe Christophrase the troll more than I should. The other two stared. He's the one that has people's limbs torn off, said Tom John. How much do you owe him? said Howell. It's all right, said Vitola hurriedly. I'm keeping up the interest payments, more or less. Yes, but how much does he want? An arm and a leg. The dwarf and the boy stared at him in horror. How could you have been so... I did it for you two. Tom John deserves a better stage. He doesn't want to go ruining his health, sleeping in lattice and never knowing a home. And you, my man, you need somewhere settled with all the proper things you ought to have, like trap doors and wave machines and so forth. You talked me into it, and I thought, they're right. It's no life on the road, giving two performances a day to a bunch of farmers and going round with a hat afterwards. What sort of future is that? I thought... We've got to get a place somewhere with comfortable seats for the gentry. People who don't throw potatoes at the stage. I said blow the cost. I just wanted you to... All right, all right, said Howell. I'll write it. I liked it, said Tom John. I'm not forcing you, mind, said Vitola. It's your own choice. Howell frowned at the table. There were, he had to admit, some nice touches. Three witches was good. Two wouldn't be enough. Four would be too many. They could be meddling with the destinies of mankind and everything. Lots of smoke and green light. You could do a lot with three witches. It was surprising no one had thought of it before. So we can tell this fool that we'll do it, can we? Said Vitola, his hand on the bag of silver. And of course you couldn't go wrong with a good storm. And there was the ghost routine that Vitola had cut out of... Please yourself, saying that they couldn't afford the muslin. And perhaps he could put death in, too. Young Daffy would make a damn good death with white makeup and platform soles. How far away did he say he'd come from? he said. The Ram Tops, said the playmaster. Some little kingdom no one's ever heard of sounds like a chest infection. It'd take months to get there. I'd like to go anyway, said Tom John. That's where I was born. Vitola looked at the ceiling. Howell looked at the floor. Anything was better just at that moment than looking at each other's face. That's what you said, said the boy. 
When you did a tour of the mountains, you said? Yes, but I can't remember where, said Vitola. All those little mountain towns look the same to me. We spent more time pushing the latte across rivers and dragging them up hills than we ever did on the stage. I could take some of the younger lads and we could make a summer of it, said Tom John. Put on all the old favourites. And we could still be back by Soul Cake Day. You could stay here and see to the theatre and we could be back for a grand opening. He grinned at his father. It'd be good for them, he said slyly. You always said some of the young lads don't know what a real acting life is like. Howell's still got to write the play, Vitola pointed out. Howell was silent. He was staring at nothing at all. After a while, one hand fumbled in his doublet and brought out a sheaf of paper, and then disappeared in the direction of his belt and produced a small corked inkpot and a bundle of quills. They watched as, without once looking at them, the dwarf smoothed out the paper, opened the inkpot, dipped a quill, held it poised like a hawk waiting for its prey, and then began to write. Vitola nodded at Tom John. Walking as quietly as they could, they left the room. Around mid-afternoon they took up a tray of food and a bundle of paper. The tray was still there at tea-time. The paper had gone. A few hours later, a passing member of the company reported hearing a yell of, It can't work! It's back to front! And the sound of something being thrown across the room. Around supper, Vitola heard a shouted request for more candles and fresh quills. Tom John tried to get an early night, but sleep was murdered by the sound of creativity from the next room. There were mutterings about balconies, and whether the world really needed wave machines. The rest was silent, except for the insistent scratching of quills. Eventually, Tom John dreamed. Now, have we got everything this time? Yes, Granny. Like the fire, Magrat? Yes, Granny. Right. Let's see now. I wrote it all down, Granny. I can read, my girl, thank you very much. Now, what's this? Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. What are these supposed to be? Oh, Jason slaughtered a pig yesterday, Esme. These look like perfectly good chitterlings to me, Gaither. There's a couple of decent meals in them, if I'm any judge. Please, Granny. There's plenty of starving people in Clatch who wouldn't turn up their nose at them, that's all I'm saying. All right, all right. Whole grain wheat and lentils too, in the cauldron seethe and stew. What happened to the toad? Please, Granny, you're slowing it down. You know Goody was against all unnecessary cruelty. Vegetable protein is a perfectly acceptable substitute. That means no newt or fenny snake either, I suppose. No, Granny. Or tiger's children? Here. What the hell's this? Excuse my clatching. It's a tiger's children. Our Wayne bought it off for a merchant from fawn parts. You sure? Our Wayne, our special Esme. Looks like any other children to me. Oh well. Double hubbles, double trouble, fire burn and cauldron, but 
Why isn't the cauldron bubbling, Magrat? Tom John awoke, shivering. The room was dark. Outside, a few stars pierced the mist of the city, and there was the occasional whistle of burglars and footpads as they went about their strictly lawful occasions. There was silence from the next room, but he could see the light of a candle under the door. He went back to bed. Across the turgid river, the fool had also awakened. He was staying at the fool's guild, not out of choice, but because the duke hadn't given him any money for anything else, and getting to sleep had been difficult in any case. The chilly walls had brought back too many memories. Besides, if he listened hard, he could hear the muted sobs and occasional whimpers from the students' dormitories as they contemplated with horror the life that lay ahead of them. He punched the rock-hard pillow and sank into a fitful sleep, a chance to dream. Slab and grew, yes, but it doesn't say how slab and grew. Goody Wemper recommended testing a bit in a cup of cold water like toffee. How inconvenient that we didn't think to bring one, Magrat. I think we should be getting on, Esme. The night's nearly gone. Just don't blame me if it doesn't work properly, that's all. Let's see. Baboon hair and... Who's got the baboon hair? Oh, thank you, Gaither. That looks more like cat hair to me, but never mind. Baboon hair and mandrake root. And if that's real mandrake... I'm very surprised. Carrot juice and tongue of boot. I see. Little humour, I suppose. Please hurry. All right, all right. Owl hoot and glowworm glimmer. Boil and then allow to simmer. You know, Esme, this doesn't taste half bad. You're not supposed to drink it, you daft oyen. Tom John sat bolt upright in bed. That was them again. The same faces, the bickering voices, distorted by time and space. Even after he looked out of the window, where fresh daylight was streaming through the city, he could still hear the voices grumbling into the distance, like old thunder fading away. I, for one, didn't believe it about the tongue of boot. It's still very runny. Do you think we should put some cornflour in it? It won't matter. Either he's on his way or he isn't. He got up and doused his face in the wash basin. Silence rolled in swathes from Howell's room. Tom John slipped on his clothes and pushed open the door. It looked as though it had snowed indoors, great heavy flakes that had drifted into odd corners of the room. Howell sat at his low table in the middle of the floor, his head pillowed on a pile of paper, snoring. Tom John tiptoed across the room and piled up a discarded ball of paper at random. He smoothed it out and read, King, now I am just going to put the crown on this bush here, and you will tell me if anyone tries to take it, won't you? Groundlings, yes. King, now, if I could just find my horsey. First assassin pops up behind rock. Audience. Behind you! First assassin disappears. King. You're trying to play tricks on old Kingy, you naughty. There was a lot of crossing out and a large blot. 
Tom John threw it aside and selected another ball at random. King, is this a... Duck, knife, dagger, I see... Behind, beside, in front of... Before me, it's... Beak, handle, pointing at me... My hand? First murderer. Oh, no, it isn't. If faith, it is not so. Second murderer. Oh, yes, it is. Thou speakest true, sir. Judging by the creases in the paper, this one had been thrown at the wall particularly hard. Howell had once explained to Tom John his theory about inspirations, and by the look of it, a whole shower had fallen last night. Fascinated by this insight into the creative processes, however, Tom John tried a third discarded attempt. Queen. Faith, there is a sound without. Mayhap it is my husband returning. Quick, into the guardy robe, and wait not upon the order of your going. Murderer. Marry, but your maid still has my pantoufle. Maid, opening door. The Archbishop, Your Majesty. Priest, under bed. Bless my soul. Diver's alarums. Tom John wondered vaguely what diver's alarums, which Howell always included somewhere in the stage directions, actually were. Howell always refused to say. Perhaps they referred to dangerous depths or lack of air pressure. He sidled towards the table and with great care pulled the sheaf of paper from under the sleeping dwarf's head, lowering it gently onto a cushion. The top sheet read, Ferenc, Felmet, Small Gods, Eve, A Knight of Knives, Daggers, Kings by Howell of Vitala's Men, A Comedy, Tragedy in Eight, Five, Six, Three, Nine Acts, Characters, Felmet, A Good King, Ferenc, a bad king, worthy wax, an evil witch, hog, and likewise evil witch, Margaret, and siren. Tom flicked over the page. Scene, a uh, drawing room, ship at sea, street in Pseudopolis. Blasted moor, enter three witches. The boy read for a while and then turned to the last page. Gentles, leave us, dance and sing, and wish good health unto the king. Exeunt all, singing fa-la-la, etc. Shower of rose petals, ringing of bells, guards descend from heaven, demons rise from hell, much ado with turntable, etc. The end. Howell snored. In his dreams... Gods rose and fell, ships moved with cunning and art across canvas oceans, pictures jumped and ran together and became flickering images. Men flew on wires, flew without wires. Great ships of illusion fought against one another in imaginary skies. Seas opened. Ladies were sawn in half. A thousand special effects men giggled and gibbered. Through it all he ran with his arms open in desperation, knowing that none of this really existed, or ever would exist, 
and all he really had was a few square yards of planking, some canvas and some paint, on which to trap the beckoning images that invaded his head. Only in our dreams are we free. The rest of the time we need wages. It's a good play, said Vitola. Apart from the ghost. The ghost stays, said Howell sullenly. But people always jeer and throw things. Anyway, you know how hard it is to get all the chalk dust out of the clothes. The ghost stays. It's a dramatic necessity. You said it was a dramatic necessity in the last play. Well, it was. And in Please Yourself, and in A Wizard of Ankh, and all the rest of them. I like ghosts. They stood to one side and watched the dwarf artificers assembling the wave machine. It consisted of half a dozen long spindles, covered in complex canvas spirals, painted in shades of blue and green and white, and stretching the complete width of the stage. An arrangement of cogs and endless belts led to a treadmill in the wings. When the spirals were all turning at once, people with weak stomachs had to look away. Sea battles, breathed Howell. Shipwrecks, tritons, pirates. Squeaky bearings, laddie, groaned Vitola, shifting his weight on his stick. Maintenance expenses over time. It does look extremely intricate, Howell admitted. Who designed it? A daft old chap in the street of cunning artificers, said Vitola. Leonard of Quirm. He's a painter, really. He just does this sort of thing for a hobby. I happen to hear that he's been working on this for months. I just snapped it up quick when he couldn't get it to fly. They watched the mock waves turn. You're bent on going, said Vitola at last. Yes, Tom John's still a bit wild. He needs an older head around the place. I'll miss you, laddie. I don't mind telling you. You've been like a son to me. How old are you exactly? I never did know. Hundred and two. Vitola nodded gloomily. He was sixty, and his arthritis was playing him up. You've been like a father to me, then, he said. It evens out in the end, said Howell, diffidently. Half the height, twice the age. You could say that, on the overall average, we live about the same length of time as humans. The playmaster sighed. Well, I don't know what I will do without you and Tom John around, and that's a fact. It's only for the summer, and a lot of the lads are staying. In fact, it's mainly the apprentices that are going, and you said yourself it'd be good experience. Vitola looked wretched, and in the chilly air of the half-finished theatre, a good deal smaller than usual, like a balloon two weeks after the party. He prodded some wood shavings distractedly with his stick. We grow old, Master Howell. At least, he corrected himself, I grow old, and you grow older. We have heard the gongs at midnight. Aye, you don't want him to go, do you? I was all for it at first, you know. Then I thought, 
There's destiny afoot. Just when things are going well, there's always bloody destiny. I mean, that's where he came from. Somewhere up in the mountains. Now fate is calling him back. I shan't see him again. Sorry for the summer. Vitola held up a hand. Don't interrupt. I'd got the right dramatic flow there. Sorry. Flick, flick, went the stick on the wood shavings, knocking them into the air. I mean, you know he's not my flesh and blood. He's your son, though, said Howell. This hereditary business isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's fine of you to say that. I mean it. Look at me. I wasn't supposed to be writing plays. Dwarfs aren't even supposed to be able to read. I shouldn't worry too much about destiny if I was you. I was destined to be a miner. Destiny gets it wrong half the time. But you said he looks like the fool person. I can't see it myself, mark you. The light's got to be right. Could be some destiny at work there. Howell shrugged. Destiny was funny stuff, he knew. You couldn't trust it. Often you couldn't even see it. Just when you knew you had it cornered, it turned out to be something else. Coincidence, maybe, or providence. You barred the door against it, and it was standing behind you. Then just when you thought you had it nailed down, it walked away with a hammer. He used destiny a lot. As a tool for his plays, it was even better than a ghost. There was nothing like a bit of destiny to get the old plot rolling, but it was a mistake to think you could spot the shape of it, and as for thinking it could be controlled. Granny Weatherwax squinted irritably into Nanny Og's crystal ball. It wasn't a particularly good one. Being a greenish glass fishing float brought back from Fawn's seaside parts by one of her sons, it distorted everything, including, she suspected, the truth. He's definitely on his way, she said at last, in a cart. A furry white charger would have been favourite, said Nanny Og. You know, caparisoned and that. Has he got a magic sword? said Magrat, craning to see. Granny Weatherwax sat back. You're a disgrace, the pair of you, she said. I don't know. Magic chargers, fiery swords, ogling away like a couple of milkmaids. A magic sword is important, said McGrat. You've got to have one. We could make him one, she added wistfully, out of thunderbolt iron. I've got a spell for that. You take some thunderbolt iron, she said uncertainly, and then you make a sword out of it. I can't be having with that old stuff said Granny. You can wait days for the damn things to hit, and then they nearly take your arm off. And a strawberry birthmark, said Nanny Og, ignoring the interruption. The other two looked at her expectantly. A strawberry birthmark, she repeated. It's one of those things you've got to have if you're a prince coming to claim your kingdom. That's so everyone will know, of course. I don't know how they know it's strawberry. Can't abide strawberries, said Granny vaguely, quizzing the crystal again. In its cracked green depths, smelling of bygone lobsters, a minute Tom John kissed his parents, 
shook hands or hugged the rest of the company and climbed aboard the leading latte. It must have worked, she told herself, else he wouldn't be coming here, would he? All those others must be his trusty band of good companions. After all, common sense. He's got to come 500 miles across difficult country. Anything could happen. I dare say the armour and swords is in the cart. She detected a twinge of doubt and set out to quell it instantly. There isn't any other reason for him to come. Stands to reason. We got the spell exactly right. Except for the ingredients and most of the poetry, and it probably wasn't the right time. And Gaitha took most of it home for the cat, which couldn't have been proper. But he's on his way. What can't speak can't lie. Best put the cloth over it when you've done, Esme, said Nanny. I always get worried someone'll peer in at me when I'm having my bath. He's on his way said Granny, the satisfaction in her voice so strong you could have ground corn with it. She dropped the black velvet bag over the ball. It's a long road, said Nanny. There's many a slip twixt dress and drawers that could be bandits. We shall watch over him, said Granny. That's not right. If he's going to be king, he ought to be able to fight his own battles, said Magrat. We don't want him to go wasting his strength, said Nanny primly. We want him good and fresh for when he gets here. And then I hope we shall leave him to fight his battles in his own way, said Magrat. Granny clapped her hands together in a businesslike fashion. Quite right, she said, provided he looks like winning. They had been meeting at Nanny Ogg's cottage, McGrat made an excuse to tarry after Granny left, around dawn, allegedly to help Nanny with tidying up. Whatever happened to not meddling, she said. What do you mean? You know, Nanny. It's not proper meddling, said Nanny awkwardly, just helping matters along. Surely you can't really think that. Nanny sat down and fidgeted with a cushion. Well, see, all this non-meddling business is fine in the normal course of things, she said. Not meddling is easy when you don't have to. And then I've got the family to think about. Oh, Jason's been in a couple of fights because of what people have been saying. Oh, Sean was thrown out of the army. The way I see it, when we get the new king in, he should owe us a few favours. It's only fair. But only last week you were saying... McGrath stopped, shocked at this display of pragmatism. A week's a long time in magic, said Nanny. Fifteen years, for one thing. Anyway, Esme is determined and I'm in no mood to stop her. So what you're saying, said McGrat icily, is that this not meddling thing is like taking a vow not to swim. You'll absolutely never break it, unless, of course, you happen to find yourself in the water. Better than drowning, said Nanny. She reached up to the mantelpiece and took down a clay pipe that was like a small tar pit 
She lit it with a spill from the remains of the fire, while Grebo watched her carefully from his cushion. Magrat idly lifted the hood from the ball and glared at it. I think, she said, that I will never really understand about witchcraft. Just when I think I've got a grip on it, changes. We're all just people. Nanny blew a cloud of blue smoke at the chimney. Everyone's just people. Can I borrow the crystal? said Magrat suddenly. Feel free, said Nanny. She grinned at Magrat's back. Had a row with your young man, she said. I really don't know what you're talking about. Haven't seen him around for weeks. Oh, the Duke sent him to... Magrat stopped and went on. Sent him away for something or other. Not that it bothers me at all, either way. So I see. Take the ball by all means. McGrath was glad to get back home. No one was about on the moors at night anyway, but over the last couple of months, things had definitely been getting worse. On top of the general suspicion of witches, it was dawning on the few people in Lancre who had any dealings with the outside world that, A, either more things had been happening than they had heard about before, or, B, time was out of joint. It wasn't easy to prove. Because of the way time was recorded among the various states, kingdoms and cities. After all, when over an area of a hundred square miles the same year is variously the year of the small bat, the anticipated monkey, the hunting cloud, fat cows, three bright stallions, and at least nine numbers recording the time since the calendar of the theocracy of Muntab counts down, not up. No one knows why, but it might not be a good idea to hang around to find out. Assorted kings, prophets, and strange events were either crowned, born, or happened, and each year has a different number of months. And some of them don't have weeks. And one of them refuses to accept the day as a measure of time. The only thing it is possible to be sure of is that good sex doesn't last long enough, except for the Zamingo tribe of the Great Neff, of course. But the few traders who came along the mountain tracks after the winter seemed to be rather older than they should have been. Unexplained happenings are always more or less expected in the Ramtops because of the high magical potential, but several years disappearing overnight was a bit of a first. She locked the door, fastened the shutters, and carefully laid the green glass globe on the kitchen table. She concentrated. The fool dozed under the tarpaulins of a river barge, heading up the Ankh at a steady two miles an hour. It wasn't an exciting method of transport, but it got you there eventually. He looked safe enough, but he was tossing and turning in his sleep. Magrat wondered what it was like spending your whole life doing something you didn't want to. Like being dead, she considered. Only worse, the reason being you were alive to suffer it. She considered the fool to be weak, badly led, and sorely in need of some backbone. And she was longing for him to get back, so she could look forward to never seeing him again. It was a long, hot summer. They didn't rush things. There was a lot of country between Ankh Moorpork and the Ramtops. It was, Howell had to admit, fun. 
It wasn't a word dwarfs were generally at home with. Please yourself went over well. It always did. The apprentices excelled themselves. They forgot lines and played jokes. In Stolat, the whole third act of Gretelina and Malaeus was performed against the backdrop for the second act of the Mage Wars. No one seemed to notice that the greatest love scene in history was played on a set depicting a tidal wave sweeping across a continent. That was possibly because Tom John was playing Gretelina. The effect was so disconcertingly riveting that Howell made him swap roles for the next house, if you could apply the term to a barn hired for the day, and the effect still had more rivets than a suit of plate armour, including the helmet, and even though Gretelina in this case was now young Wimslow, who was a bit simple, intended to stutter, and whose spots might eventually clear up. The following day, in some nameless village in the middle of an endless sea of cabbages, he let Tom John play Old Miskin in Please Yourself, a role that Vitola had always excelled in. You couldn't let anyone play it who was under the age of 40, not unless you wanted an old miskin with a cushion up his jerkin and grease paint wrinkles. Howell didn't consider himself old. His father had still been digging three tons of ore a day at the age of 200. Now he felt old. He watched Tom John hobble off the stage and for a fleeting instant knew what it was to be a fat old man, pickled in wine, fighting old wars that no one cared about anymore, hanging grimly onto the precipice of late middle age for fear of dropping off into antiquity, but only with one hand, because with the other he was raising two fingers at death. Of course he'd known that when he wrote the part, but he hadn't known it. The same magic didn't seem to infuse the new play, they tried it a few times just to see how it went. The audience watched attentively and went home. They didn't even bother to throw anything. It wasn't that they thought it was bad. They didn't think it was anything. But all the right ingredients were there, weren't they? Tradition was full of people giving evil rulers a well-justified seeing to. Witches were always a draw. The apparition of death was particularly good and some lovely lines. Mix them all together they seemed to cancel out, become a mere humdrum way of filling the stage for a couple of hours. Late at night, when the cast was asleep, Howell would sit up in one of the carts and feverishly rewrite. He rearranged scenes, cut lines, added lines, introduced a clown, included another fight, and tuned up the special effects. Didn't seem to have any effect. The play was like some marvellous, intricate painting, a feast of impressions close to, a mere blur from a distance. When the inspirations were sleeting fast, he even tried changing the style. In the morning, the early risers grew accustomed to finding discarded experiments decorating the grass around the carts, like extremely literate mushrooms. Tom John kept one of the strangest. First which... He's late. Pause. Second witch. He said he would come. Pause. Third witch. He said he would come, but he hasn't. This is my last newt. I saved it for him, and he hasn't come. Pause. I think, said Tom John later, you ought to slow down a bit. You've done what was ordered. 
No one said it had to sparkle. It could, you know. If I could just get it right. You're absolutely sure about the ghost, are you? Said Tom John. The way he threw the line away made it clear he wasn't. There's nothing wrong with the ghost, snapped Howell. The scene with the ghost is the best I've done. I was just wondering if this is the right play for it, that's all. The ghost stays. Now let's get on, boy. Two days later, with the ramtops a blue and white wall that was beginning to dominate the hubwood horizon, the company was attacked. There wasn't much drama. They had just manhandled the lattes across a ford and were resting in the shade of a grove of trees which suddenly fruited robbers. Howell looked along the line of half a dozen stained and rusty blades. Their owners seemed slightly uncertain about what to do next. We've got a receipt somewhere, he began. Tom John nudged him. These don't look like guild thieves, he hissed. They definitely look freelance to me. It would be nice to say that the leader of the robbers was a black-bearded, swaggering brute with a red headscarf and one gold earring and a chin you could clean pots with. Actually, it would be practically compulsory. And, in fact, this was so. Howell thought the wooden leg was overdoing it, but the man had obviously studied the role. Well now, said the bandit chief, what have we here, and do you have any money? We're actors, said Tom John. That ought to answer both questions, said Howell. And none of your repartee, said the bandit. I've been to the city, I have. I know repartee when I see it, and... He half turned to his followers, raising an eyebrow to indicate that the next remark was going to be witty. If you're not careful, I can make a few cutting remarks of my own. There was dead silence behind him until he made an impatient gesture with his cutlass. All right, he said, against a chorus of uncertain laughter. We'll just take any loose change, valuables, food and clothing you might be having. Could I say something? said Tom John. The company backed away from him. Howell smiled at his own feet. You're going to beg for mercy, are you? said the bandit. That's right. Howell thrust his hands deep into his pocket and looked up at the sky, whistling under his breath and trying not to break into a maniac grin. He was aware that the other actors were also looking expectantly at Tom John. He's going to give them the mercy speech from the troll's tale, he thought. The point I'd just like to make is that, said Tom John, and his stance changed subtly. His voice became deeper, his right hand flung out dramatically. The worth of man lies not in feats of arms, or the fiery hunger or the ravening. It's going to be like when that man tried to rob us back in Stolat, Howell thought. If they end up giving us their swords, what the hell are we going to do with them? And it's so embarrassing when they start crying. It was at this moment that the world around him took a green tint, and he thought he could make out, right on the cusp of hearing, other voices. There's men with swords, Granny. Rend with glowing blades, the marvel of the world, Tom John said. And the voices at the edge of imagination said, 
No king of mine is going to beg anything off anyone. Give me that milk jug, McGrat. The heart of compassion. The kiss. That was a present from my aunt. This jewel of jewels. This crown of crowns. There was silence. One or two of the bandits were weeping silently into their hands. Their chief said, Is that it? For the first time in his life, Tom John looked nonplussed. Well, yes, he said. Er, uh, would you like me to repeat it? That was a good speech, the bandit conceded. But I don't see what it's got to do with me. I'm a practical man. Hand over your valuables. His sword came up until it was level with Tom John's throat. And all the rest of you shouldn't be standing there like idiots, he added. Come on, or the boy gets it. Wimslow, the apprentice, raised a cautious hand. What? said the bandit. Uh, are you sure you listened carefully, sir? I won't tell you again. Either I hear the clink of coins, or you hear a gurgle. In fact, what they all heard was a whistling noise high in the air, and the crash as a milk jug, its sides frosted with the ice of altitude, dropped out of the sky onto the spike atop of the chief's helmet. The remaining bandits took one look at the results and fled. The actors stared down at the recumbent bandit. Howell prodded a lump of frozen milk with his boot. Well, well, he said weakly. He didn't take any notice whispered Tom John. A born critic, said the dwarf. It was a blue and white jug. Funny how little detail stood out at a time like this. It had been smashed several times in the past, he could see, because the pieces had been carefully glued together again. Someone had really loved that jug. What we're dealing with here, he said, rallying some shreds of logic, is a freak whirlwind, obviously. Milk jugs don't just drop out of the sky, said Tom John, demonstrating the astonishing human art of denying the obvious. I don't know about that. I've heard of fish and frogs and rocks, said Howell. There's nothing against crockery. He began to rally. It's just one of these uncommon phenomena. They happen all the time in this part of the world. There's nothing unusual about it. They got back onto the carts, and rode on in unaccustomed silence. Young Wimslow collected every bit of jug he could find and stored them carefully in the props box and spent the rest of the day watching the sky, hoping for a sugar basin. The lattes toiled up the dusty slopes of the ram tops, mere motes in the foggy glass of the crystal. Are they all right? said McGrat. They're wandering all over the place, said Granny. They might be good at acting, but they've got something to learn about the travelling. It was a nice jug, said McGrat. You can't get them like that anymore. I mean, if you'd said what was on your mind, there was a flat iron on the shelf. There's more to life than milk jugs. It had a daisy pattern round the top. Granny ignored her. I think, she said. It's time we had a look at this new king, close up. <laughs> she cackled. 
You cackled, Granny, said McGrath darkly. I did not, it was... Granny fumbled for a word. A chuckle. I bet Black Alice used to cackle. You wanna watch out, you don't end up the same way as she did, said Nanny from her seat by the fire. She went a bit funny at the finish, you know, poisoned apples and such like. Just because I might have chuckled a, a bit roughly, sniffed Granny. She felt she was being unduly defensive. Anyway, there's nothing wrong with cackling, in moderation. I think, said Tom John, that we're lost. Howell looked at the baking purple moorland around them, which stretched up to the towering spires of the ram tops themselves. Even in the height of summer, there were pennants of snow flying from the highest peaks. It was a landscape of describable beauty. Bees were busy, or at least endeavouring to look and sound busy, in the time by the trackside. Cloud shadows flickered over the alpine meadows. There was the kind of big, empty silence made by an environment that not only doesn't have people in it, but doesn't need them either. Or signposts. We were lost ten miles ago, said Howell. There's got to be a new word for what we are now. You said the mountains were honeycombed with dwarf mines, said Tom John. You said a dwarf could tell wherever he was in the mountains. Underground, I said. It's all a matter of strata and rock formations, not on the surface. All the landscape gets in the way. We could dig your hole, said Tom John. But it was a nice day, and as the road meandered through clumps of hemlock and pine, outposts of the forest, it was pleasant enough to let the mules go at their own pace. The road, Howell felt, had to go somewhere. This geographical fiction had been the death of many people. Roads don't necessarily have to go anywhere. They just have to have somewhere to start. We are lost, aren't we? said Tom John after a while. Certainly not. Where are we then? The mountains, perfectly clear on any atlas. We ought to stop and ask someone. Tom John gazed around at the rolling countryside. Somewhere a lonely curlew howled, or possibly it was a badger. Howell was a little lazy about rural matters, at least those that took place higher than about the limestone layer. There wasn't another human being within miles. Who did you have in mind? He said sarcastically. That old woman in the funny hat, said Tom John pointing. I've been watching her. She keeps ducking behind a bush when she thinks I've seen her. Howell turned and looked at the bramble bush, which wobbled. Oh there, good mother, he said. The bush sprouted an indignant head. Whose mother? it said. Howell hesitated. Just a figure of speech, Mrs. Miss. Mistress snapped Granny Weatherwax. And I'm a poor old woman gathering wood, she added defiantly. She cleared her throat. Lorks, <clears throat> she went on. You did give me a fright, young master. My poor old heart. There was silence from the cart. Then Tom John said, 
I'm sorry. What? said Granny. Your poor old heart what? What about my poor old heart? said Granny, who wasn't used to acting like an old woman and had a very limited repertoire in this area. But it's traditional that young heirs seeking their destiny get help from mysterious old women gathering wood, and she wasn't about to buck tradition. It's just you mentioned it, said Howell. Well, it isn't important. Lorks. I expect you're looking for Lonkra, said Granny testily, in a hurry to get to the point. Well, yes, said Tom John, all day. You've come too far, said Granny. Go back about two miles and take the track on the right, past the stand of pines. Wimslow tugged at Tom John's shirt. When you m meet a mis mysterious old lady on the road, he said, you've got to offer her a sh share of your lunch or help her across the r river. You have? It's t t terribly b b bad luck not to. Tom John gave Granny a polite smile. Would you care to share our lunch, good ma- Oh, ma'am? Granny looked doubtful. What is it? Salt pork? She shook her head. Thanks all the same, she said graciously, but it gives me wind. She turned on her heel and set off through the bushes. We could help you across the river if you like shouted Tom John after her. What river? said Howell. We're on the moor. There can't be a river in miles. Y you've got to get them on your your side, said Wimslow. Then th they help you. Perhaps we should have asked her to wait while we went and looked for one, said Howell sourly. They found the turning. It led to a forest crisscrossed with as many tracks as a marshalling yard. The sort of forest where the back of your head tells you the trees are turning around to watch you as you go past, and the sky seems to be very high up and a long way off. Despite the heat of the day, a dank, impenetrable gloom hovered among the tree trunks, which crowded up to the track, as if intending to obliterate it completely. They were soon lost again, and decided that being lost somewhere where you didn't know where you were was even worse than being lost in the open. She could have given more explicit instructions, said Howell. Like, ask at the next crone, said Tom John. Look over there. He stood up in the seat. Oh, there, oh, good, he hazarded. McGrath pushed back her shawl. Just a humble wood gatherer, she snapped. She held up a twig for proof. Several hours waiting with nothing but trees to talk to hadn't improved her temper. Wimslow nudged Tom John, who nodded and fixed his face in an ingratiating smile. Would you care to share our lunch, oh, good w miss? He said. It's only salt pork, I'm afraid. Meat is extremely bad for the digestive system, said McGrath. If you could see inside your colon, you'd be horrified. I think I would, muttered Howell. Did you know that an adult male carries up to five pounds of undigested red meat in his intestines at all times? Said McGrath, whose informative lectures on nutrition 
had been known to cause whole families to hide in the cellar until she went away. Whereas pine kernels and sunflower seeds... There aren't any rivers around here that you need helping over, are there? said Tom John desperately. Don't be silly, said McGrath. I'm just a humble wood-gatherer, Lorks, collecting a few sticks and mayhap directing lost travellers on the road to Loncra. Ah, said Hal, I thought we'd get to that. You fork left up ahead and turn right at the big stone with the crack in it. You can't miss it, said McGrath. Fine, growled Hal. Well, we won't keep you. I'm sure you've got a lot of wood to collect and so forth. He whistled the mules into a plod again, grumbling to himself. When, an hour later, the track ran out among a landscape of house-sized boulders, Howell laid down the reins carefully and folded his arms. Tom John stared at him. What do you think you're doing? he said. Waiting, said the dwarf grimly. It'll be getting dark soon. We won't be here long, said Howell. End of CD 7